were two college students called Sergey Brin and Larry Page, and they met for the first time. They came up with an idea for a very new thing at the time called a search engine, and they named it Backrub. Now, not, luckily for them, soon after this, they changed the name to Google, which is what we know it as today. And their mission was to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful to everyone. Now, over 20 years later, we take this, I think, a bit for granted. We use the search engine, probably most of us, almost every day. But back then, it was actually a pretty big mission statement to come up with, to try and organize all of the world's information and to be able to make it accessible to everyone. So a few years after the company started, Sergey and Larry, the two founders, wrote a document called 10 Things We Know to Be True. And point number seven was called, There's Always More Information Out There. And they said this, We've added the ability to search news archives, academic journals, billions of images, and millions of books. And our researchers continue looking into ways to bring all the world's information to people seeking answers. So never before have we had so much information at our fingertips, and yet there's still so much information that we don't yet know. There's always more out there. And as human beings, we are naturally very curious, aren't we? We can see that with the very first human beings who ever lived, Adam and Eve, they were in the Garden of Eden, and they were told not to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that's exactly what they did. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to know what God knew. They were curious. And we can see it throughout history from the very first researchers thousands of years ago right up to the discovery of the Higgs boson particle just a few years ago. We can see it in our own lives whenever we hear the ping of our phones in our pockets and we instinctively reach in to get our phones because we want to know what's going on either in the world or in the lives of our friends. We want to know things. But despite having this natural thirst for knowledge and despite having more information available to us than ever before, we still don't know everything. And today we're going to be looking at this question, what does it mean when we say that God is omniscient, that he knows absolutely everything? And how does that compare and contrast with us as human beings? And I think there are three implications. Firstly, that God knows everything about the universe. Secondly, he knows everything about us. And then finally, he knows everything about the future. So we'll be looking at a few different passages today from God's word, but hopefully they'll be there uh, on the screen behind you so you can follow along with me. So firstly, God knows everything about the universe. Let's look at Psalm 147, verse 4 to 5. It says this, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. You can see behind us there, that's a picture of the Milky Way. That's our galaxy. And our galaxy is only actually one of 10 billion galaxies that are out there in the universe. Many of them are much bigger than ours. And I've been told that there are 100 billion stars on average in each galaxy. So for those of you who are really good at mental maths, you've already worked out, there are 1 billion trillion stars in the whole universe. And that number looks like this. One followed by 21 zeros. But of course, that's only an approximate number. That's the number that we have come up with. But actually, God knows the exact number of stars in the universe. 
And much more than that, he knows each of them by name, according to the psalm. He knew about Orion's belt long before human beings came up with a name for it. And what the psalmist is getting at here is not just that God has a special interest in astronomy, but actually that he knows everything about the universe. He set creation into motion, and he sustains it. So he knows about the density of every individual atom. He knows the speed at which each of the planets are currently rotating in our galaxy. He knows about every single note in every piece of music ever written. And he knows every thought and word that every human being has ever spoken. God knows everything. And what this means is that we have a massive, all-seeing, all-knowing God. His understanding has absolutely no limit. This is a picture of the, um, the long room in Trinity College, Dublin. I'm sure some of you have been to see it. Um, and Trinity College has the biggest library in Ireland, about six million books. And many of them are held here in this room. Um, and we could spend about a thousand lifetimes in this room just acquiring more and more knowledge, reading all the books that they have there. And we wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of God's knowledge. Because as big as the universe is, God is so much bigger. The universe is finite. It's hard for us to try and comprehend the size and the scale of the earth, never mind our universe. But God holds the entire universe in his hands. He is infinitely bigger and has infinitely more knowledge than we do. And in a sense, what this should leave us with, our our gut reaction is, is awe, isn't it? Whenever we look out at the stars on a clear night and we see just a fraction of the stars that there are in our universe... Our first reaction is wonder and awe. But when we consider the God who has made each of these stars and who knows them each by name, our reaction should be so much more to be in awe of the creator rather than the creator, created thing. And so God knows everything about the universe, but crucially, we do not. We do not. We heard earlier from Ruth in our, our reading um, this morning at our passage in Job, chapter 38 where God addresses Job with a series of questions, a long, long series of questions over the course of three chapters. For example, in verse 4, he says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? So what is actually going on in this passage? We need to talk a little bit about the background of this. And if you read the book of Job, as I'm sure many of you do know the book of Job, you'll know that Job was a righteous man who right at the start of the book, a series of terrible things happened to him. He loses all of his cattle, which was his livelihood. All of his servants are killed. And worst of all, all of his children, his ten children are killed. And in the midst of his grieving, a few of his friends turn up to try and offer comfort and some counsel to him. And they attempt to offer him advice. And one of his friends, Eliphaz, says in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he says, Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, he's saying to Job, well, Job, you must have done something wrong. For all of this suffering to have come upon you, it's clearly your fault. And the worldview at the time um, for Job and his friends was that if something bad happened to you, it was because you had done something wrong. And if you did good things, then good things would happen to you. And we can see this worldview in some cultures today, the idea of karma, for example, that what goes around comes around, uh, is quite prevalent. 
But we know that the Bible doesn't support this view at all. The Psalms are full of protests by David and by other psalmists who say, why do the wicked prosper? Why do good things seem to happen to bad people? And we know the only truly good person who ever lived, who was Jesus, had terrible uh, things happen to him. So it's not the case that simply good things happen to those who do good and vice versa. So in seeking to give wisdom, Job's friends actually just display their ignorance. Job, though, doesn't take this view, but he does question God. He struggles to understand why he's experiencing so much suffering. And God is speaking in this chapter to Job after being questioned by him, and he responds to him with this series of questions. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Verse 5, who marked off its dimensions? Verse 18, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Surely you know you were already born. And what we see here is that the Lord is saying to Job and showing him that this idea that he can know everything as a human being is ridiculous. That he could be somehow present at the beginning of the world or be able to understand the vastness and the complexity of the earth. And throughout the book, Job insisted that God uh, give him answers. But what God is doing is turning the tables on Job and saying, well, if you want answers from me, then you're going to have to give me some answers. And of course, the questions that God asks Job are simply unanswerable. Now, importantly, the message here is not that it's wrong to ask questions to God, but it's wrong to assume that we know things that only God can know. And so what we find here is a challenge from God. He's saying, if you know so much about the world, Job, then you tell me all about it. And if we look at how far we've come as human beings, especially over the last century or so, It's easy for us, I think, to develop quite a big head. We seem to know more and be able to do more than ever before. So, for example, NASA put the first man onto the moon back in the 1960s, and their plan now is to put the first human being onto Mars by the early 2030s. Scientists have discovered how to split the atom. They've cracked the human genome. And doctors are able to treat more and more diseases than ever before. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up. It can make us arrogant. We think that we're sophisticated, that we know so much, and it makes us self-sufficient. But in actual fact, our ignorance far outweighs our knowledge. Someone who's much more knowledgeable than me has told me that we actually don't really understand what light is. Is it made of waves or particles? We don't know. We don't know, how much, uh, we don't know much at all about how the brain works. And most importantly, we still don't know why cats purr. Just one of the mysteries of the universe. But certainly our foolishness far outweighs our wisdom. On a personal level, I definitely know that I lack wisdom and knowledge in so many different areas of my life. And so when we consider the infinite extent of God's knowledge compared to our very, very limited knowledge, we always come up short. Socrates said, true knowledge exists in knowing that you know nothing. And that might seem like a bit of an overstatement, but it actually gets quite close to the truth that compared to God, we know really absolutely nothing. God is infinite in his wisdom, in his knowledge, and we are definitely not. And what happened to Job when he was questioned by God is that he was humbled. He was humbled. He realized that he had no right to assume knowledge of things that he simply could not comprehend. 
He says in chapter 42, verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And that attitude is really helpful, isn't it? Because he's adopting a posture of humility and realizing that he doesn't know everything. And this posture that Job adopts is pretty rare in the world around us. To say, I have uttered what I did not understand, bursts the balloon of our pride. And so the next time that we're faced with a really tricky problem that we can't work out, we would do well to follow Job's example by saying, God, there are things that are too wonderful for me. It's beyond my knowledge. And like Job, we have to recognize that there is, in fact, so little that we can know. We are deficient in both our knowledge and our wisdom. And so we need to call out to the one who is the source of knowledge. Another verse that highlights this is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14. It says this, Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And what we see here is that God has absolutely no equal and no superior. There's nobody to teach him something that he doesn't already know. There's nobody who can give him wisdom or guidance or direction. Because he himself is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. And I think there are times when we can know this in our minds. We know that God is all-knowing. But we forget it actually in practice. And so, for example, when we are tempted to go our own way, to rely on our knowledge and our abilities, what we're effectively saying to God is, God, my will is better than your will. My will is wiser. I have more knowledge than you do. A lot of the time when we sin, it's not because we don't know any better. We, we know what is right and what is wrong a lot of the time because God has told us in his words. And yet we still disobey him. We know that we shouldn't pursue a certain relationship or gossip about others or lose our temper, but we effectively say, God, my will is wiser than your will. My way is better than your way. And that's a really foolish thing, isn't it? To to say to God, the God who has created us, that actually we know better than you. He knows everything about the universe, but yet we think that we know better than him. Secondly, then, God knows everything about us. Psalm 139, verse 4 says this, Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 6 to 7, the Lord Jesus is speaking and he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your heads are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God's infinite knowledge brings us intimacy. His infinite knowledge about us brings us intimacy. Because you can't really truly love somebody unless you actually know them. And God knows everything about us. He knows every word that we're ever going to say before we say it. Every thought that we're ever going to have. He knows the number of hairs on our head. And so depending on our hair color, we'll have between 100 to 150,000 hairs on our head. Of course, your experience may vary of that. You may have slightly fewer. Um, But of course, God knows exactly how many there are. And more than just what makes us up physically, he knows our thoughts, our emotions, our hopes, He knows the things that annoy us and wind us up. He knows the people who we love and the things that we enjoy. And he knows the extent of our sin. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows our past, our present, and our future. 
And the amazing part is that despite knowing every single thing about us, despite knowing all of our sin, God finds us precious. He cares for us and he loves us. We, in fact, only ever know a very small part of ourselves. We can grow in wisdom and knowledge about ourselves, of course, but we only know the tip of the iceberg of ourselves and the tip of the iceberg of our sin, the deceitfulness of our hearts, the selfishness of our own will, the lack of care that we show towards others. We only realize a fraction, really, of everything that we do. But God knows about every single part of it, and he still loves us. Often in a new relationship, a big fear uh, for people is that the other person will get to know us and reject us. So you know the story, boy meets girl, they fall in love, and very soon one or the other person has an insecurity. What if that other person gets to know the real me? Not the me that I put out there on a first or second date, but what if they actually get to know me and they find something they don't like and they reject me? And I think that's a fear that leads to a lot of young people not really wanting to make that commitment because it's scary. If somebody else gets to know us and they decide they don't want us and they reject us. And the astonishing thing is that God himself is the one who knows us best. He knows all of our flaws, all of our weaknesses and our sin and our rebellion and he still loves us and cares for us. There's nothing that we can do that will make him love us any more or make him love us any less. There's nothing that one day he'll discover about me and say, well, if I'd known that about Michael, I wouldn't have sent my son Jesus to die for him. There's nothing that he doesn't know about us. And we know that he loves us because he sent Jesus to die in our place, to die the death that we should have died. That's how we know that we are loved. So God's infinite knowledge about us gives us total assurance and acceptance. So this is obviously fantastic news. It's good news. But whilst it's good news that God knows everything about us and he loves us, it's also pretty sobering news. It says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, if we haven't already put our trust in Jesus, this is actually quite troubling news, isn't it? Because no matter how good you think you are, you might be here this morning and think, well, I'm a pretty decent person. You might be able to convince all of us in this room that you're a good person. But actually, no matter how good you think you are, you cannot cover anything from the God who sees everything and knows everything. All of our sin is exposed. Everything is laid bare. And so the only answer to this problem is to come before God and say, God, I recognize that you are holy, that you're in the right, and I'm in the wrong and to admit our need for him. But even for those of us who have already put our trust in Jesus, this is still a sobering thought to know that one day we have to give an account to God and we can't hide anything. So on the one hand, it's extremely comforting, yes, to know that God knows us, he cares for us, and he loves us despite our sin. But on the other hand, we know that one day we have to give an account. There is nothing hidden from God's sight. Thirdly, then, and finally, God knows everything about the future. Isaiah verse 46, verse 10 says this, the Lord is speaking, and he says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And what this verse means is that we have 
effectively a bit of an antidote to worry. We don't need to live in fear or worry about the future because God knows the future and he has a plan. God's the Alpha and he's the Omega. He knows the beginning and the end. And so this is a helpful aid whenever we're struggling with worry. And why is that the case? Well, we can worry about lots of things, about our finances, about our health, our families or our jobs. There are a thousand things that we can worry about, but actually there are only usually two core reasons which lie behind all of our worries. Firstly, it's the fear of the unknown. And then secondly, it's the reality that we don't have control over our own circumstances. We worry because we don't know what the future will hold. Have I done enough to pass those exams? Do we have enough to get to the end of the month? And then secondly, it's a lack of control over those circumstances. And so in, in a sense, it's, it's only natural for us to worry as human beings, as we were talking about earlier, God knows absolutely everything, but we do not. And so it's only natural that as human beings, we worry. But we must remember that God, in his wisdom and in his knowledge, knows absolutely everything. And that includes the future. But not only that, that he has a plan for all of creation. He has a plan for our lives, and he has a plan for everything else. There's a film called Big Fish, in which the main character is a guy called Edward Bloom. And Edward lives a really, really adventurous life. And pretty early on in his life as a boy, he's given this vision by an old witch. He's given a vision of when he's going to die. And he's freaked out a little bit about it at first, as you would imagine, but he then realizes that because he knows his future, that it gives him an element of freedom to live his life. So he goes and he meets a giant, he robs a bank, he joins the circus, he has this really adventurous life. Knowing about the future helps to relieve his concerns about the present. Now you might say, well, I actually don't want to know when I'm going to die, thanks very much, rather not know. Or perhaps you already do have an idea of it and it's actually not a very comforting thought at all. But there are things, aren't there, that we all would love to know about our future. What kind of job will I get? When will I get another job? When will I meet that special someone and, and one day maybe get married? What will life look like next year or even next week? We would love to know the script for our lives. And not only that, we would love to be the chief writers of that script and maybe have a little bit of input from God along the way. We would love to have that control, but the fact is that we do not have that. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. And God, in his graciousness and in his love for us, chooses to reveal his purposes and his plans to us one step at a time. He has a plan for everything, for creation and for our lives. And in fact, the thing that we do know and that we do have assurance of is the most important thing of all. It's the long-term plan. We might not know what's going to happen uh, short-term, but we know that in the long-term that we have an inheritance that will never, ever perish, spoil, or fade. We know that we have an eternity with Christ where one day there will be no more suffering and no more tears. We might not know what's going to happen next week, but ultimately we know that our inheritance is secure with Christ. And what we find from this verse finally is that God's purpose will stand. It will stand. God was there in the beginning at the foundation of the world. He was there naming each of the stars by name. He was there creating us in his image. 
He was there before the beginning of the nation of Israel when he promised Abraham that he would have countless descendants. He was there at the cross when Jesus died the death that we should have died. And he was there when Jesus rose from the grave in victory. And he's now preparing the world for the day when Christ will return. God's purpose will stand. And I want to suggest that this is a pretty good antidote to worry and fear about the future. Yes, it can be frustrating. We don't know what's going to happen next year or even next week. But God is totally sovereign. His infinite knowledge about the world and about us and about the future means that no matter how uncertain our future appears to be, his purpose will stand. History is not an aimless cycle where some nations rise and then others fall. Our lives are not an aimless period of 70 or 80 years or more on this earth. But actually our lives have an eternal aspect to them. One day Jesus will return and we will be with him. Let's pray.